This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness if at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We have uh, been going through different aspects and bringing to you different things that uh, the visioning team did over the last year. We just finished up with uh, a series of messages on our mission of bringing gospel restoration to people's deepest needs and our broken world. And this morning, we're going to start with our values. You know, our mission uh, tells us what we are supposed to be doing as a church. What are we supposed to be doing? That's, that's our mission. And if you come to our church very long at all, you will hear this language of gospel restoration and our brokenness in, in any number of ways. Values are different. Whereas mission is what we're supposed to be doing, values communicate what's important to us as a church. So a mission is what we are supposed to be doing as a church. Our values are what is important to us as a church. And you don't really hear values as much as the more you hang out with us as a church and in biblical community, for example, you begin to feel them. They are, they are shared convictions, essentially, that we have as a group of believers and as our church that we say, this is what is so important to us that ends up driving much of what we do and our mission because this motivates us. And some of these values, they are, they are actual. We had lists of things that we knew were important to us at church, but we had to narrow it down. And we came up finally with six uh, because we couldn't, you know, we just had too many good ones. We probably was supposed to be four or five, but we went a little bit longer. And, uh, but we recognized that some of these values are actual. They're in our church, and they really do characterize us, and you feel them. And others are here in, in maybe a smaller form, but they're more aspirational. We know that this is something in our church that we need God to increase in among us. And, and one of those is prayer and praying dependently. That's one of our values. And so we're starting a week of prayer, an emphasis of prayer, uh, right after our celebration next Sunday morning. Uh, so the, our values are actual and aspirational. This first one that we're covering this morning, we believe is more actual than aspirational. It's living authentically. In other words, in a world of guilt and shame, we share together in the grace of God as we repent of our sins and we heal from our wounds. You know, our passage has much to say about sin and living authentically before God and each other. So I want us just to jump right in this morning. We're going to get into the text, and I want us to see four applications, four gospel applications that should shape our understanding and our practice of living authentically. The first one is in verse 5. 
Living authentically begins by knowing and delighting in God as he reveals himself. Let me say that again. Living authentically begins by knowing and delighting in God as he reveals himself. Those last few words are important. Verse 5 says this. This is the message. We have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. These churches or the church and the Christians that the Apostle John was writing to were experiencing turmoil and dissension in their church. In fact, there was a group of people led by false teachers that had splintered off from their church and were creating a, a sense of chaos among them. A group of people that had begun to deny fundamental aspects of the gospel. It, it seems like as you, as you read through the book of John, you can decipher what was going on because he says things like, if we say, if we say, he does it in our text. And what he's doing is he is quoting the, or referring to the actual statements and beliefs of these splinter uh, groups that were denying aspects of the gospel. And so it seems, as you read through these different statements, that they were adopting an early form of various Christian heresies that would grow in, over the next century, especially Gnosticism and Docetism. Now, we're not going to go into what all those heresies were, but suffice it to say that in both of those heresies, they, in some way or another, attacked the nature of God, the person, and the work of Jesus Christ, and what it means to walk as a follower of Jesus Christ. And so to these men and women who are being misled by false teachers, John begins after his introductory words by saying something that's profound. God is light. Now what does he mean by that? What does he mean that God is light? You know, if you think about the scriptures, the very first time that we really interact with our Heavenly Father is in Genesis chapter 1. And what is said there is that all of creation is just absolute darkness and it's void and it's formless. And God speaks. And what does he say? Let there be light. Exactly. In fact, if you look at how God reveals and interacts with humanity, on numerous occasions throughout the scriptures, it is as light. For the Israelites, when they are leaving the uh, nation of Egypt and they're getting out of their time of slavery through the Exodus, he guides them through the wilderness in the day as a pillar, as a cloud, and at night as a pillar of fire, a pillar of fire that was so bright that it lit the area for miles around. When the tabernacle and the temple are built, the people knew that God was there because the Shekinah glory, the light of God emanated from that place. You think of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration when, when he is given that form of his eternal being and as the disciples are there before him, they fall on their face and can't look at him because the brightness of the light. God is light. You know, the Apostle Paul tells us in First uh, Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, that God alone has immortality who dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion forever. Amen. He tells the Christians of Thessalonica that we who follow Jesus Christ, we are children of light. So walk in the light. We are not children of darkness. 
So do not walk in the darkness. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. Now read it out loud with me. Who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If we think of God and his character, he is light. He is absolutely pure and perfect and holy, hating sin and the deeds of darkness, loving righteousness. If we think of God's thoughts and his mind, he is light. He is absolute truth. How important that is in this day of relativity. He is absolute truth, and whatever he says is always perfectly accurate and real and right. If we think of God's actions towards us, he is light. He guides us. He comforts us. He brings warmth and illumination into our lives. God is light. You know, we experience this in our own lives in various ways, how important it is to have this guiding, illuminating aspect of light. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was out late in the afternoon and into the evening time fishing, and the sun had gone down, and I was in a part of the river where there were no homes and there were no streets. There was no ambient light from street lights. And on this evening, the, the moon had not come up, and it was cloudy and overcast, and so the stars could not shine. And let me tell you, the minute the sun really went down, you went from being able to see all around to not being able to see past the end of the boat. And so after fishing for a couple more hours, now it's really, really dark. I decide it's time to head home, and I reach into my console because it's so dark. I grab a Q-beam, and I plug it in, and it does not work. And I said, no problem, I'm uh, prepared, the Boy Scouts, I have one of those tactical bright flashlights I keep in a dry box, and I reach into my dry box, and it's not there. So I was not prepared. And now I'm getting nervous, because, you know, you've seen it, uh, it's happening right now. You go across the causeway, and you look out across the river, and it looks like a minefield out there, right? You have all these little white buoys where the, the crab traps are, and they're everywhere. There's hundreds of them. And I knew that coming in, I had dodged numerous crab traps, and you do not want to get one of those things wrapped around your prop, especially late at night, because it's going to be a long, miserable, no see mosquito-eaten night, Okay. And so I began to putter out very slowly, very nervously, getting more and more nervous. And then I jiggled the light and I'm playing with it and it came on. Wow. And the, the, the anxiety immediately disappears. Why? Because I hold that thing up and immediately the, the darkness is pushed back and I can see all of those buoys all around me. I can take the correct and the safe path back into the channel and then follow those channel markers, which I can illuminate with my light all the way back to the marina. The light makes all the difference, doesn't it? And because God is light, for us to walk in the light, to commune with him, to have fellowship with him, we will love who he loves, starting with Jesus, and we will hate what he hates, starting with sin. And anyone who is actually living in Christ, there is a great desire in our heart to live authentically and openly before God, living and walking in his light. 
If you're in Christ, there is a desire for this, not to hide from him. Like Adam and Eve hid in the garden because of their sin, not seeking to live a double life of both righteousness and unrighteousness with one foot in the realm of light and one foot in the realm of darkness. See, this is what was going on with these people who were denying the faith. John says in verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. We, we know that on the physical plane, it is impossible to walk in light and darkness at the exact same time. Because the minute you have light, what does it do to the darkness? It pushes it back, right? Yet spiritually, this group of people were saying, yeah, you can do that. This is an early form of, of dualism. You know, it's a heresy, and a, a false thought that the physical realm, it's not important. You can do whatever you want physically. Sin is a spiritual matter in your spirit. And so what you do with your body is irrelevant. We saw this in the book of Revelation a few weeks back when we looked at the Nicolaitans who said, sure, you can go to the temples and you can participate in their feasts and in their orgies. And even though you're doing things with your body physically that's wrong, your inner man has his fingers crossed saying, psych, I'm not really involved and therefore it's not sin. It's a crazy idea. To walk in the light authentically before God means that we delight in who God is, that we fellowship with him and we live openly and honestly, transparently before him and before other believers, agreeing that what Jesus says and what the heavenly father says is right, that is what is right, and what is sin is sin. But don't miss verse seven, because verse seven has our second application in it. If you say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Do you catch what he's saying here? And in, in the first application, we understand that living authentically begins with knowing and delighting in God as he reveals himself. We don't have the right to say, to me, God is, or I think that God is. That leads to idolatry and false doctrine and false belief and therefore false living. And that's what this group of people were doing. But in this second application, it's different. He's saying living authentically, when you're living authentically with God, it leads to something. It leads to living an authentic biblical community. Look at verse seven again. If we walk in the light, and in other words, we're, we're rejecting this idea that we can have one foot in the realm of light and one foot in the realm of darkness. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, what's the result? We have fellowship with one another. You see, folks, the natural outcome of walking authentically with God Living openly and authentically before God is that we will live authentically with other believers. We will find, as we are in Christ, living in the light, a growing desire in our hearts to fellowship with other believers. And that word fellowship is important that he uses it. This isn't, this isn't talking about the fact that 
After the benediction, we're going to share some stories about our week and a joke and talk about the football games and what's coming up for Thanksgiving. I mean, that's an aspect of it, but this is something deeper here. This is koinonia. This is that word that we build so much on here in our church. We refer to it as authentic biblical community. We will want this. We will crave the more we live authentically before God, we will crave living authentically with other believers. We will, we will participate and want to be in relationships and in, in environments where we can love others and be loved by them. And most importantly, where we can know them, and here you go, we can be known. Warts and all. Everything. Listen, we're going to have more to say about this, especially in December, because as you can imagine, this is also a core value of our church, of being in biblical community, connected intentionally with one another. So for now, I just want to plant this idea that biblical community isn't something that we've added on as a program. This is the natural spiritual outgrowth of living authentically before God. When you live authentically before God, you will find that you want to live authentically in relationship with other believers. So, third application. How do we respond to our sin? I, uh, how we respond, excuse me, how we respond to our sin. It either promotes or it hinders the authentic life. In verse 6, you can see that this group was engaging and teaching false ideas that denied what the gospel says about sin and our relationship to uh, sin. In verse 6, for example, we just saw how they thought that we can sin and be righteous at the same time, this dualistic idea. In verses 8 and 10, they have something else going on. They were also teaching a variation in forms of sinless perfectionism. In some cases, they were saying, you know what? There is no longer a sin nature. Or they were denying the continuing influence of the sin nature on their daily lives. And they were espousing this idea that, hey, we, we're, we're, we're not doing wrong. We're sinless. We're right before God. Uh, they, they weren't walking in the light. They weren't living authentically before. Who in their right mind can be living authentically and honestly before God and say, I don't sin? It's just impossible. It's part of the human condition. And so they were rationalizing and they were saying crazy things. Now, now listen, I bet if I went around the room this morning and we were just one-on-one -on -one and I said, so let me ask you, do you still sin or are you basically perfect? I think I know most of them. Maybe there's a visitor here that I don't know well enough that would say, yeah, I'm perfect, but I doubt that because it's just not, I mean, it just defies common sense, right? I imagine all of us would say, now, you know what, th this is obviously does not apply to me because I don't think that I'm perfect in any way. But let's understand, let's don't be too hasty and think that's not us, what was going on with these believers or these, these people who claim to be believers. Let's understand that functionally, we can end up in the same place when we coddle our sin when we justify our sin or we rationalize it away or we equivocate and we, we try to call unrighteousness righteous. Uh, this, we end up functionally in the same place. How do we do this? So for example, we, rarely will we say, you know what, I am angry and filled with hate. When's the last time you say that about yourself? No, instead, we'll say, you know what, I'm just really irritated at that person or I'm perturbed. Or, you know, 
I'm not an addict in bondage to sin. I just need a little help relaxing at night. I need something to help me feel a little, a little better. Or, you know, I'm not, I'm not lusting after that person or that thing. Not at all. I'm just admiring it from a distance. Right? Or, or I'm not greedy. I'm not covetous and greedy. I'm just prudent, and I'm preparing for the future so I can be secure. How desperately, church, Christians of the day, including us, we need to stop playing games with God. To be honest, to be authentic, to call our struggles and to call our sin what they are. To not equivocate, to not wonder what the definition of is is, and all those types of verbal games that we can play as humans. You know, there's a paradox with the gospel. The more we walk in the light of God, the more cognizant we become of how broken and sinful we actually are. And that's what's so amazing about the gospel is when we walk with God and we live in his light, his light exposes the darkness. But he does it in a way that doesn't beat us down and destroy us and discourage us. But it does reveal more and more our need of God's mercy, our need, continual need, of his transforming grace. This is what the gospel does. And verse 9 tells us how. It tells us how to live authentically with God and other people. How to respond to this sin so that the authentic life is promoted and it grows rather than being hindered. He says in verse 9, if we confess. That word confess is homologeo. It, it means to concede or admit that something is factual and true. To concede and admit that something is factual and true. The opposite of homologeo is to lie about uh, the situation, to lie about our sin, to rationalize it, to excuse it away. If we confess our sins, important word, plural, sins, John is not saying that we agree to the fact that we are sinners. He's saying we have to get down and dirty with our sins to call them out for what they are, to identify them, to lay them out before God. It isn't, God, forgive me, I'm a sinner. It is, God, I am filled with anger. God, I am filled with greed. God, what I did was lustful. God, what I did, it was jealousy manifesting itself in my life. We call it out for what it is without any equivocation. Without any shading of the truth, we live openly before God and we call out what is happening. Essentially, what John is saying here is if we repent. This is repentance. If we repent of our sins, He, God, is faithful and just. He promises that He will forgive. He promises that he pardons, and he's just in doing it. Why? Because he laid our sins upon Jesus on the cross, and those sins have been paid for, and that debt has been fulfilled. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not that he is going to stop with us being justified before him. 
declared righteous. His intention, God says, is to cleanse us, to purify us like the Israelites were purified on the Day of Atonement so that they could come into the presence of God and fellowship with Him. God's intention is to declare us righteous and to make us holy and righteous. Let me ask you a question about this confession. Is this confession, you think, private between us and God? Like, you know, during our morning quiet time where we start confessing our sins, or, or is it public? Is he calling for private confession, or is he calling for public confession? Let's take a poll, all right? How many of you say that John is calling for private confession? Raise your hand, okay? How many of you say that he is calling for public confession? Raise your hand. Wow, okay, more public than private. How many of you just say yes? Raise your hand. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know, certainly, certainly confession does include the private interaction with God. I mean, we see this throughout the Old Testament, especially with King David in the Psalms, how he gets with God and he pours out his heart before God. He doesn't equivocate. He lives authentically before God and he calls his sin what it is and he doesn't try to make it more, less or more beautiful he brings it out, all of his ugliness out for display. But let's understand something. In the New Testament, confession of sin as a theme only, only occurs a handful of times. So, for example, you have the two, the Pharisee and the sinner in the temple who are praying, right? And, and one is, you know, full of nice words and the other is beating his chest pouring out his sin before God. You have John the Baptist who is preaching repentance of sins and the people come and they are publicly confessing their sins. You have in the book of Acts where uh, new believers come back to the apostles and they bring their idols and their scrolls and all the things that are associated with sorcery and evil and they destroy them as they are confessing their sins. A verse that is important to us here, something that we do in our church, James chapter 5, verse 16. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The, the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. I think when we look at 1 John verse 9, we have to acknowledge that it, yes, it, it doesn't preclude private confession, but it includes public confession. And that public confession of our sin and our sins and what we're struggling with is integral to living authentically before God. And I say this because, excuse me, <clears throat> I say this because John is answering these false teachers. Verse 9 and, and verse 7 is the direct answer to the false teachings of these uh, individuals. And what does he say? He says, listen, the, you're not in community with other Christians. And this is the natural outworking of living authentically. So if you're going to live authentic, you're going to be in community with other Christians, and you're going to own and confess your sins within that community. Living authentically... <clears throat> Living authentically means that 
we're honest with ourselves. We are honest with God. And we're honest with other believers. We don't hide our struggles. We don't hide and conceal our sin. Give me one example in the Bible where somebody conceals their sin and that works out good for them. <laughs> it doesn't. I'll give you a name, Achan. Look what happened to him. And there's so many examples of this in the scriptures. No, when, when we walk in the light and live authentically before God, we don't conceal and hide our sins. We bring them out into the light. We bring our sin, we bring our wounds, we bring our struggles out into the light so that we can experience repentance and healing and victory. That's what it means to live authentically. But I got to say, <clears throat> this value, it's, it can be scary. It can make you nervous, right? I mean, I know that some of you, probably like me, you're a little suspicious by nature. Maybe you've been burned. And the minute we start talking about living authentically with other people and bringing our sins out and confessing them to one another, you're immediately going, warning, Will Robinson. <laughs> How do I know this person isn't going to, you know, blab it everywhere? How do I know it's not going to be held against me? I got to tell you, I'm a pastor. This, this, this is hard because uh, people expect a standard out of people in the ministry that is frankly impossible to meet. And so whenever these types of opportunities come up, I'll, I'll, I'll just tell you right now, my inner Jack Nicholson voice fires off and starts saying, you can't handle the truth, right? In that movie, The Good Man. Because, wow, this is scary. And what if this person uses it as a weapon? I mean, these are the thoughts that enter your mind and the fear that comes with this. I will find, uh, I, will, uh, I will say, by the way, that this doesn't mean that you do deepest, darkest secret with every individual that you meet. What this is saying is that we are to be in biblical community. We are to have some relationships in our life, trusted people that we can be real with, that we can confess what's going on in our lives, and they can minister to us in prayer. And later on in 1 John chapter 5, you're going to see where John talks about sin and there's a sin to death and not sin to death and all that. And his response is, we're living like this so that we can pray for one another. We can support one another. We can hold each other's arms up. It doesn't mean sharing all the gory details of, of maybe your sin, but it means being transparent enough so that people can know you and you can be known so that you can love and be loved. It's, it's, it can be a little scary, depending on the type of person you are. But folks, it's indispensable. It's indispensable. Uh, Pax is going to give a testimony in a little bit of what this is looking like in his life. And, and I, I would echo exactly what he's going to say. There are key points in my life where, where God has moved me forward and my sanctification and in conforming me to the image of Jesus Christ. And it happens because of being honest and open with other brothers and them speaking truth into my life and helping me break through 
strongholds and obstacles. It's, it's indispensable. But it is, it does make you nervous sometimes. Let's don't deny this. Hey, here's this value. Let's, let's read it out loud together. Ready? Here we go. Living authentically in a world of guilt and shame, we share together in the grace of God as we repent of our sins and heal from our wounds. Folks, we can only live the authentic life when we are resting in the atoning work of Jesus. And this brings us to this last application here at the beginning of chapter 2. Resting in the atoning work of Jesus, it emboldens us to live authentically. He says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, so John's at me to listen, we're going to sin. If anyone does sin, <clears throat> excuse me, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Christian, if you this morning, if you are a person this morning who is in Jesus Christ, you are redeemed and you are a follower of Christ, you are no longer defined by your sin. You are defined by God's verdict upon you. And what is that verdict? Put a big square or circle around that word propitiation. That's an important word. It's, it's a word that means satisfaction. Peace. God is satisfied because of the atoning death and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Because he laid down his life on the cross and took our sins upon him and paid the debt that our sin had incurred towards, against God's righteousness and holiness. That debt is now satisfied. God's wrath is now satisfied. And we have been made at one atonement, at one with God. We, when we sin, we can rest in this truth that we are not rejected by God. Instead, we have God himself in the flesh at the right hand of the throne advocating and sponsoring us before the heavenly Father. What a beautiful truth this is, that he has satisfied our judgment and he represents us before God and he sponsors us before God. And so with this promise of acceptance, we can risk. We can risk authenticity with believers and non-believers alike. And if, and if for some reason <clears throat> there's a rejection, it doesn't matter. Because the person who really matters says, I will never reject you. I will never forsake you. I will never turn my back on you. Because you are my loved child. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we take the beauty of this truth and may we accept it this morning. Who we are in Christ means that we don't have to play games with you. We don't have to put up a facade with other people. That you love us with an unconditional, pure, glorious love because we are in Christ Jesus. Lord, give us the grace that we need that will transform us into men and women and 
young people who will live authentically before this world. Well, we will not hide and equivocate, but we will let the gospel shine through, even in our sin, where we will bring it out into the light and let you be glorified as you transform us from glory to glory to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, your Son. In his name I pray, amen.